Super Talk Mississippi media production. What's the key to discovering delectable dining? Find something that sizzles. A time-tested favorite. A feast for your eyes and palate. And a dining experience handled with care. In Vicksburg, the key to the South. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino on the return here in the Element Wealth Studio. We'll be guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. The prodigal son of Midday's has returned. <laughs> Rhino, good to have you back. I uh, appreciate Will filling in for you for three days, and then Dave filling in for me yesterday. But we are back. The, the team is once again assembled, and uh, we got a lot to talk about today with the debates last night, stuff going on here. Also, in the Magnolia State on the program today, Misty Elliott, challenge teacher from Milam Elementary School, is going to talk about... Uh, a nationwide stock market game and how they performed and got to open up the New York Stock Exchange. And then Phil Parsons, Army combat veteran at 11.05, currently on day seven of running the entire 444-mile Natchez Trace Parkway. And we'll hear what that's all about. Uh, also, a little report. You know, I was out yesterday because I had one of them colonoscopies. I think that's number five for me, if I'm not mistaken. And all went well. Uh, found a BB-sized polyp, which is nothing to be concerned about. Uh, you know, went up through this a little bit the other day, but uh, if you know anything about how colon cancer works, it starts as a polyp. It takes a long time for a polyp to start to generate cancer and takes a couple of years even generally speaking for a polyp to become visible under a microscope when they're big and they've been there a while you're more concerned when they're teeny tiny like this one is especially below uh, five millimeters in in the medical vernacular rhino they describe it as diminutive (laughs) as a diminutive polyp you got diminutive then small then large i think are the categories but should be good to go there uh don't have the final report but don't expect anything and that's why you do this it's a preventative measure i strongly encourage everyone i think the new guidelines what over 45 used to be 50 i think now it's over 45 you need to go ahead and get one of those and get screened when polyps are found and those are removed as part of the procedure you're literally preventing cancer because the polyp, if left unchecked, 
to grow in, inside your colon there will develop ultimately into cancer. So I don't have any problem talking about this because it saved my life. I had colon cancer in 2006, a long time ago. And that was just from a routine physical, discovered a little blood where it shouldn't be. And the indication then is to go have a colonoscopy and found a cancerous polyp that was removed. And the doc said, you know, if you'd have let this go on nine months to a year, would have been a different outcome. But after I had the surgery, all good. Actually, after I had the colonoscopy, I was all good because the polyp was removed and all the cancer was confined to the polyp. I know I'm getting a little wonky here, and i tell you why I do it, because you know this, Rhino. Too many people won't do it. Oh, yeah. They just won't do it. They're worried about it. I talked to somebody here on our staff a couple of days ago, um, the day before, and uh, who is of the age that should be getting screened and has not yet, and I said, you need to go do it. It ain't no fun prepping the procedures 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You're totally out. You don't feel a thing. You come out, and, uh, you know, again, if you're getting screened at the proper time, honestly, you got little to worry about. It's when you wait too long and you've let a cancer or a polyp develop into cancer. You don't even know you have it. Um, that's when it becomes a problem. Nobody in this country should ever die of colon cancer. Not a single person. Every time you hear somebody that does, you can pretty much be assured that was preventable just with getting screened. So uh, I implore you folks, take care of yourself. Go do it. It's easy. It's painless. And it will certainly prevent something bad from happening. Um, all right. And by the way, i got to tell you this right up. So <laughs> this is crazy. They wheel me in to the room where the procedure is performed, of course. Um, that's after the, the nurse has gotten you all ready with uh, wiring you up, you know, and tubing you up so the anesthesiologist can just insert that medicine in you. And I'm telling you, they tell you to count backwards, you know, start at 1,000, 1,000, 999, 998, boom, out. That's about it. Uh, but the anesthesiologist listens to the show. <laughs> He's looking at my paper. He says, are you Gerard from Middays? I'm laying down, you know, all wired up and there's no clothes on in this gown. <laughs> yes, sir, I am. I listen to you. I love your show. You and Rhino and all that stuff. So he's got on the surgical cap, you know, that they wear. It's red. It's got Make America Great Again. I kid you not. <laughs> it's so awesome. So then after recovery, they're wheeling me out. They're going to always wheel you out in a chair. That's, that's protocol. I think that's policy standard. And so you're going by, of course, the, uh, where, where the nurses are all gathered, the staff, the medical staff, and there are two young ones that say, we have a celebrity. <laughs> we listen to you every day. We love the show. And I'm doing, oh, my gosh. And my daughter's just rolling her eyes. She's with me yesterday. Uh, but just know that we have fans, even in the GI clinic. So, um, you, you know, you've been, done this a long time. I'm always shocked when you when you find that out from just the general public, just how how much people do listen, how popular it is, and we're so so grateful and uh, for that. And thank you. And I did. And I just had my hand over my heart, just saying, man, thank you, thank you, thank you so much because um, we we want to inform, we want to entertain, we want you to enjoy and have fun, and and uh, maybe let us do all the digging and passing it on. So I. I, uh, I just had to pass that on. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So, 
Uh, the debate last night, honestly, I feel like I wasted two hours <laughs> watching that deal. I got about 45, 50 minutes in, and I was like, you know what? I have better things to do with my time. It was terrible. I on mean, both just, sides. On both sides. Agree. Totally terrible. Like the stage was full of people talking over each other. The moderators were just trying to talk over each other and have their five minutes. So this, you know, I've, I've shared before that of all the publications, newspapers in particular, that I, I consume on a daily basis, the one I found to be just the f- most far left leaning is the Boston Globe. And this is the headline. Five takeaways from the cacophonous second Republican presidential debate. So, Rhino, please tell the audience what a cacophony is. It's a large (laughs) gathering of loud noises. Exactly. So it's not a word you see used a lot, especially in newspapers. Um, But I guess sometimes these writers think they're cute by by, uh, pulling out these words that are not common, but right. A cacophony, uh, it's, it's a, they describe it in the dictionary here, a harsh, discordant mixture of sounds. That is a good description of what it was. So, Like if you've ever been in the band hall at a school when they're all tuning. Exactly. That's a cacophony. That's a cacophony. <laughs> exactly. Cacophony. Pardon me. It's C-A-C-C-A-C-O, not C-A-C-A. Cacophony. Pardon me. I mispronounced it. So It's in my top five favorite C words. <laughs> it is a great C word. But it's still behind calipigian. <laughs> what is that? It means having an extremely nice posterior. <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. A calipigian goddess. Oh, boy. Calipigian. That is awesome. Well... The New York Times, I always like to read the left's reaction. I mean, the right's reaction, of course, is important, but the left's reaction, I just find intriguing. So the New York Times actually produced a, a pretty decent article, and uh, above the headline, the first thing, the teaser, if you will, is a chart that shows the first debate in a column and the second debate as a column. The first debate, of course, was held August 23rd, the second, September 27th. And then under the column, there's little little thumbnails of each of the candidates. And then it ranks them in the first debate and then also in the second debate in the column, too. So the columns are sort of side by side. And then they are connected with colored bars um, that shows kind of where they were. It's a good sort of visual depiction of where they were in the first debate, now where they are in the second. So they ranked Haley, Nikki Haley, number one in the first and number one in the second. So her bar is just straight across. And then they've got Pence, number two in the first, and seventh, dead last, in the second. He did bomb out. You saw the crazy one-liner joke he tried. I don't know if you stayed tuned in long enough for that. I think that was early on, <laughs> whereas Joe Biden bomb. belongs in the unemployment line. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's like, <laughs> it was terrible. And he expected like just a big, yeah, you know, rousing response to that. Didn't get it. Terrible. They got Christie in the first debate as number three and number three in the second. So he's got a straight line. DeSantis went from fourth in the first to second, according to the New York Times, in the second. On the other side of the break, I'll share with you how they ranked the remaining uh, three candidates, three candidates we didn't touch on. The Dow up 72 points today. we got a big day in store for you on this uh, Friday Eve. Coming right back in the Element Wealth Studio.
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go. Two, three, four. That's C-A-C-O-P-H-O-N-Y. <laughs> Somebody asked, how do you spell that? Not uh, a widely used word, but certainly, I think, a propose for last night's debate. There was so much crosstalk and, and talking over, and a couple of times I think there were conversations going where the mics were muted, and it got a little testy. Can't remember who that was. It may have been uh, Vivek and Scott. Tim Scott, for some reason. Well, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, uh, they, they kind of exchanged words, and it was about the uh, gas tax that Scott says she supported. She said she didn't, and Scott kept saying, check it on YouTube, which just sounded weird to me, coming from a candidate on the stage. Go to YouTube. <laughs> I, he, you know, I, I, as, a, as a person and a senator, I like Tim Scott, but honestly... It's just platitudes and tropes. There's just nothing, you know what I mean, substantive, specific, explicit in any of his ideas. It's just, we got to, America's great, and therefore we got to make America great, and America's just a great nation, and I love America. Okay, I get it. I got that part. But what are you going to do about inflation? What are you going to do about the border? Well, you know, the border is the border of America, and America's a great country. Like, okay. <laughs> there used to be a comedian that was excellent at um, impersonating Ronald Reagan. And I, I'm trying to recall, Rhino, what... Uh, and he had that kind of the head bob, you know, down. But there was some line he used to use, because of, uh, Ronald Reagan was just kind of the epitome of exuding optimism. I mean, I think that's why, honestly, he shellacked Jimmy Carter, because Jimmy Carter was just always negative. And, and at the time when the country needed optimism, Ronald Reagan... I think offered that, and I, I still believe that's why one of the reasons he won, other than the economy was terrible and Carter knew nothing about what to do about it. But the, the comedian, the impersonator, used to say, you know, America's great because of how great this country is or something like that. And, and that's kind of what... Dana Carvey? No, it was way before that. It was when Reagan was in office, believe it or not, and he used to appear like on Johnny Carson as I recall, back in those days. I just know Dana Carvey pretty much has every president impersonated. It's it's unbelievable. And uh, George uh, H.W. Bush, he's so, so good. (laughs) Not going to do it. (laughs) This was way before. And this guy's main shtick, honestly, was impersonating Ronald Reagan. He was a professional impersonator. I think that's kind of what propelled him uh, to fame. And it's a time, again, when Reagan was, was in office. But Pence, he had two jokes, honestly, that fell flat. One was when he said, as you pointed out earlier, that Biden should, quote, be on the unemployment line, not the picket line. And that was in response to a question about Biden going to join the picket line at the UAW on Tuesday. Which it would have landed better if Christie hadn't already beat him to the punch literally 30 seconds earlier. That's true. And the other thing I noticed about Pence was every question that was uh, delivered to him, 
posed to him, he always said, well, I really want to answer the question you asked three ago. Remember, that was like, that seemed bad, too. Like, oh, let me get my two cents in here. But the other one that was kind of cringeworthy was sort of a sex joke, I guess you could call it. Um, and that was from Mike Pence when he, he kind of cracked that um, he was argued about President Biden, he said, sleeping with a member of the teachers' union. And he said, um, you know, my wife isn't a member of the teachers' union, but i got to admit, I've been sleeping with a teacher for 38 years, for full disclosure. And he said that, like, awaiting this kind of, you know, positive response from the audience. But he didn't get one. (laughs) That was a little weird, wasn't it, Uh, in my view? So I'll just say I wasn't impressed, honestly. I, I, you know, none of those said, yeah, president. That's, I mean, that's what I think when I'm watching a debate. Well, Could I envision that person as a president? That's the problem, is you have people that give great answers that you'd never pull the lever for. That's true. Like Chris Christie, 99 times out of 100, he's going to give you a, a solid answer. But he's so unlikable. I agree. Burgum is even worse. Burgum will give you a textbook answer that... Nobody else is really even touching on, but who in the heck is that guy? Yeah, I totally agree. And it's just hard when you're coming from uh, a small state in North Dakota, and he's been a very successful governor, and I've pointed out before, he's a software guy that created some fantastic software. It's true. He took a company that was nothing. I remember it, man, when they first started, and they introduced Great Plains software. Heck, that's back in the early 80s. And he grew that thing and uh, really uh, gained tremendous market share. It started out as kind of small, mid-sized business, a full suite accounting software. It was excellent. And then it, it was ultimately acquired by Microsoft, for, I think for a couple of billion dollars in the early 2000s. I mean, that's just the American dream. That's hats off. Unbelievable. And I have used that software. Use it in my business. Great Plains Dynamics, GP. It's awesome. Uh, the Mississippi Lottery Corporation uses it. Uh, it is fantastic. Very high-end now. Very high-end ERP software. Great tools. Um, and and he is a very successful business person, entrepreneur, has a business-like approach to running the state. But he's just kind of, he's milk toast. He's not inspiring. He doesn't, he doesn't effectively communicate, I don't believe, his own accomplishments or his vision. And that's what's missing in this deal. I would have to say, honestly, the person who who improved their stock the most from debate one to two was DeSantis. He he seemed to kind of let the cacophony <laughs> um, carry on, and then he'd interject and seemed a bit more like, I guess you could say, the adult in the room. And he still looks creepy as hell trying to smile. He does, and he always seems mad, doesn't he? He's just always mad. He looks like a a toddler that just messed his diaper when he smiles. Because <laughs> it's fake. It's it's like he has to kind of force himself uh, to smile. Uh, and then uh, Haley and Vivette got into a rel- rather fiery exchange about TikTok. I uh, remember that. And then Haley, even though she's ranked number one, she supports something, I think, that is not popular amongst most Republicans, which is more funding for Ukraine. She was a bit of an outlier, although Pence does too, and I think Christie does too, I think Tim Scott does. They're all on board. In fact, the Senate passed um, legislation with the government about shutdown. Uh, they passed their own bill that McCarthy, by the way, said it's DOA in the House, and that's just to fund the government. 
because we're running out of money to keep the government open. We got two days left uh, in that respect, I guess three. And and so uh, the Senate passed the bill, a resolution, and it went over the House. McCarthy says dead on arrival. I should point out it does include more funding for Ukraine. Both of Mississippi's senators did support it, and so did Tim Scott. So I would say on that matter, the Republicans are, uh, certainly those on the stage last night, the seven, are divided. Um, what all seem to support, honestly, on the border is the same thing that Trump supports. So there's no difference there, but I don't know that there should be. It's pretty straightforward. Shut the dang border down. I will say that I think DeSantis did the best on that issue because he actually said we ought to declare the cartels as terrorists, as enemies of the U.S., and he's okay with mobilizing the U.S. military to pursue them. I believe he said even in Mexico. They're, you know, they're, right? That's the way I understood it. Not just to provide military support to shut down the poorest border and to protect um, the areas that, was it Vivek Ramaswamy said you could drive like freight trains or trucks through it, I think is what he said. Just big holes on our border. Well, that, that's true. It's very porous. Don't have enough people to, I guess, man the border and, and guard it. But uh, DeSantis went further and said, we need to go after the cartels with the U.S. military. I tend to agree. It's Joe Biden who is enriching the cartels. He, that's who's benefiting more than anyone from his stupid open border policy is the cartels. They're getting filthy rich off of this. Not only from the shakedowns to get people across the border, migrants across the border, but the drugs. Big time. So I think DeSantis's stock went up. However, I don't see any of these folks overtaking Donald Trump. I really don't. Uh, and there's there's not enough distinction in their in their policy positions. And I think and I I would actually say that's a good thing that Trump's policy positions. We've said that on the program. I, I think I'm in alignment with for the most part. Um, it's certainly from an economic perspective. I didn't really get what I was looking for, however, in this regard from an economics matter. And I, I'm kind of faulting the moderators for not asking more questions related to economics. Like, for example, where do you stand on making the Trump tax cuts permanent? Did talk a little bit about about oil. And, you know, you got an energy, I should say, not just oil. But Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, pretty much the same uh, refrain there, which is we got to drill, we got to burn coal, we got to use natural gas. Okay, yeah, we all get that, but you know, not a lot of specifics related to that. And that's as oil crosses the $94 mark. I think you can expect the price of gas to continue to rise. Um, as a result of that, it's a bit a bit lagging at the retail level. It's nearly seven bucks, seven bucks a gallon in California where they were yesterday. Misty Elliott, challenge teacher, Milam Elementary School, joins us next in the Element Well Studio. Bring it on! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on! On Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are once again live in the Element Well studio. We welcome to the program Milam Elementary School Challenge teacher Misty Elliott. Hey, Misty, how's it going today? Hello, I am doing well. How are you? Doing fantastic. All right, so tell us about this uh, this nationwide game that Milam... Am I pronouncing that right? Is it Milam or Milam? Just looking at the spelling here. Milam. S- say it yes, again? it's Milam. It's Milam. Okay, just want to make Milam. sure I got that right, because there's two uh-huh. L's in it, which uh, sometimes would mean it could be a short I. But thanks for clearing that up. Um, that's what I'm seeing in the article here, but I see it spelled two different ways in the article. It's so only one fine. L. Okay, that's fine. All right, I'm looking at the headline, actually. I went to Milam. Okay, all right, thank you, because it's in the Tupelo area, right? Yeah. All right. Pr- appreciate that. I'm just mm-hmm. looking here at the article. It has two L's in the headline and one in the body, and that's fine. But the big thing is you won the 16th annual Capitol Hill Challenge, and that's uh, kind of a financial a stock market game, if you will, that is sponsored by the Security Industry Financial Market Association. I guess that's SIFMA or SIFMA. I'm not sure. Again, the acronym yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> but uh, this is something that's supported by Charles Schwab, the Charles Schwab Foundation, of course, uh, a big um, wealth management platform, stock trading platforms, kind of how they got that start. So tell us about this. Um, well, we play annually in the fall and the spring, and um, our sixth grade challenge, which challenges our gifted program in Tupelo, and we um, they work in teams of three to five kids, and we do kind of a whole uh, lesson prep for it for about two weeks before they actually start investing, and we learn a lot about the stock market. We learn about investing. This year, we actually had um, the CEO of Renaissance Bank come in to Milam and uh, met with the kids or did a, a lesson with the kid. I get kids, I guess you would say, and um, he kind of over gave an overview of um, what he does in the stock market and what Renaissance role is as a uh, one of the companies in the Tupelo area that is headquartered here that's actually publicly traded. Mm-hmm. And that was really a neat uh, day for the kids. And then they start playing the game and they have $100,000 of, we call it monopoly money, <laughs> and they um, invest in real time. They use Yahoo Finance to track their stocks and um, it's um, moderated, I guess you would call it, uh, daily based on the live New York Stock Exchange um, trading. So they have a fun time with it and learn a lot. And we just really think it's important to get some financial uh, foundation laid in the sixth grade before they, you know, start high school. Okay, so that's what I was going to ask you. I know it's elementary school, but these are sixth graders. They're doing this, right? These will be Mm -hmm. like... 10, yes, 10, 11 years grade. old or so? 10, 10 or 11 years old, is that right? For the yeah, sixth grade? That, uh, a lot of them turn 12 throughout the year. Okay. But yeah, that's the... Okay. Uh, well, this is, this is we awesome. We have some 13-year-olds. So is this something that Milam Elementary has always participated in? Have you always had kind of part of the uh, pedagogy uh, focused on uh, financial matters, financial subject matter? 
The last um, four years that I've been here, we have done it. So I'm not sure how long they've been uh, participating, but at least for the last four years, and I know before then, um, yeah. we um, got invited to participate, and so we just do it every year. That is so awesome. I, I'm, I can't tell you how pleased I am to hear that you're exposing these youngsters uh, to these issues, these matters, and, and just uh, how the financial markets work in general. It's, uh, this is incredible, because there's a lot of folks that go all the way through college and never get any exposure to that, and then they decide they want to start investing a little of their extra money, and they don't know how to do it, and they, they've never really been taught just the fundamentals, the basics of how the markets work, which is fantastic. So tell us about uh, what you won exactly here, and then it's my understanding, uh, Misty, that uh, you guys got to open up the New York Stock Exchange. Is that right? That's the notes I have. Is that right or not? Well, I, not not technically. So um, we actually had um, in Times Square the Nasdaq uh, highlighted and wished us good luck in this fall okay. um, game. Very um, cool. So that a, a look. Yeah, it was very cool. Um, a lot of the kids thought that it was Photoshop, um, <laughs> but it was not. They, you know, they have, they just flash on the screen yeah. Yeah. Um, messages or whatever, but it was, it had a picture of Milam School and it had um, good luck on the, this fall's uh, stock market game. Now, last spring, we had a team come in first. That may be what, what you're referencing. Okay. Um, and they won um, a monetary prize. Um, it was sponsored by Renaissance Bank, actually. Then um, this year they can win uh, $300 cash to the first place team, uh, $200 for the second, and $100 for the uh, third place. Um, right now, uh, Milam has five of the top 10 teams out of 414 teams nationally wow. that's playing the stock market game. So. We're doing pretty well. Congratulations. That's awesome. So do the kids have fun with this? Do they, do they enjoy it? They do. I, I would say most of them. You have a few that are just kind of like, you know, they're not interested in numbers <laughs> and, and that kind of thing. But the kids that are number, you know, that love numbers and love, I think it's best that it's gamified, yeah. so to speak, because yeah. it's called the stock market game. Um, so, you know, the, our kids that love numbers and love a challenge and are competitive, they are all about it. I mean, they check their stocks at home and they talk about it with their parents. And so it's, it's really a neat thing to watch them participate in. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. It's so good to hear. And, and even though I know some of them may not have a lot of interest in it, you know, just gaining a basic understanding because you pretty much all going to have to deal with this to some extent at some point in your life, even if you're not sort of a daily active investor that's trading stocks. If uh, you're investing in your retirement, for example, in a 401k plan, if you're in the private sector, which is quite common, you're going to have to make some decisions about how to allocate that capital and invest it, and having this basic understanding is valuable there. Right, exactly. And that's, that's what we... Um, that has kind of been our goal to to just expose them to um and some of them actually a few kids the last several years actually have stock they actually okay. own stock already they've been given it as a gift yeah 
or their parents have gotten them interested. So that's been really cool, too. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So uh, are there any other aspects of the curriculum at Milam there related to just finances, managing, say, for example, a basic household budget or anything like that? Or is that a little early at that age? Uh, We think it's a little early. Part of our lesson plan to before the we actually start investing is talking about you know some of that as far as you know what can you do with a hundred thousand dollars and what that looks like because they don't have a a clue you know how to uh even think that big and you know some of them think they can buy a private island with a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars or you know whatever so we do talk about uh the money amount from that perspective and budget from that perspective, like how much they think their parents spend a month and that yeah, kind of thing. Sure. But it's more just to lay a foundation to help them uh, grasp what they're going to be investing. Yeah. It, it's important, though, I think, to expose uh, children, even at this age, to just kind of the, some of the basic realities of, of life, and that involves finances. We all have to deal with it. Can't just uh, walk away and ignore it because yeah. it's staring you in the face all the time. And, you know, one of the things that economists track all the time is is just the savings rates of America. And it says a lot about consumer confidence and sort of where the economy's going. And savings by savings, we mean sometimes investing uh, that excess capital in stocks, in the stock market. That would be considered an approach to savings. So it's just good that the kids are getting exposed to this. What do the parents say about this, Misty? Um, they we have a, a very positive uh, response from the parents that you know that are involved and active. Um, they think it's great, and we've even heard from parents that their kids played years ago, and they'll talk about you huh. know how much fun they had or how much they learned even and how they would come home and, you know, really uh, engage with their parents about um, what they what their stocks are doing or how their portfolio is performing and that kind of thing. That's so awesome. They, I, I think overall the parents really love it. That's awesome. Misty, appreciate you coming on and, sh- and uh, sharing all the info about that. It's a fantastic program. I applaud you for it. Uh, keep doing it. And maybe some of these sixth graders could offer some stock tips. Sounds like they're doing pretty well. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You got it. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. So, Rhino, you were telling me something about this uh, on the break. Uh, 
I was I, uh, true story here, guys. I I asked about the pronunciation because uh, and uh, and I'm not trying to be critical here of the Daily Journal. I just want folks to know what was going through my mind here. The the headline in the article uh, about uh, Milam, which was uh, I'm trying to look at the date. I don't see the date the article was published. It just had the school spelled M I L L A M, but then the body has it correctly spelled as M I L A M. And I just want to make sure I pronounced it right. I'm not familiar with the school, not from the area. You indicated you actually went to school there. Oh yeah, yeah, which is awesome. I think this is fantastic. Just so you guys will know um, that we're exposing sixth graders to the realities of money. Because you know this all too often, they graduate from college, don't have a clue, never been exposed to any of this. Look at uh, the health care. And I'm not trying to, again, diss the health care profession, but look, they're so heads down trying to learn their craft and prepare themselves for a career. Then they end up with fairly high compensating jobs. And, and they're curious and, and interested in deploying their, their capital, investing it appropriately, saving for it, and, and they've really not been exposed to any of this stuff. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to single out them. It's kind of across the board. Hell, in most of these schools across our country, and I, I think this is a good thing for Mississippi at Milam Elementary, and I would encourage all schools in our state to introduce um, this this sort of programs into their curriculum. It's important, maybe more important than anything else they learn, honestly, because we all got to face this. And if you look at what is top of mind of voters in polls leading up to the presidential election and just current current day, it's the economy, it's inflation, it's the price of gas. It's po- folks are checking their four hundred one k accounts. They ain't happy with that. We've talked a lot about PERS. And then the challenges they're facing, all public pensions in this country, which are dealing with uh, lots of headwinds in their investment portfolio. You need to understand things like this. I think this is fantastic. This is great. We need to do more of this. And we need to continue it and build on it in the high school level, in the college level. It ought to be a requirement, not all this stupid gender crap that we're forcing on them. Got to do that. You know, having all this mandatory training for teachers that we've discussed. I don't know about it in the state of Mississippi. I've not been informed of any. But teachers are having to go through all this goofy CRT, DEI, and gender training, pronoun training, and how to deal with transgenders and tampons in the bathrooms, boys' bathrooms, and all that kind of crap. No, this is what we ought to be talking about. Real-life challenges of money. It don't go away. I don't want to sound like Dave Ramsey here, but it's truth. Everybody's got to deal with this. Doesn't matter what your occupation is, what your career is. Everybody's got to deal with it. And of course, the reality is just because we haven't focused on that in the academic ranks, we got lots of people that are teaching and serving even at high levels at in uh, universities. PhDs and professors and the like, they don't know anything about this either. They can't teach it. Ought to be a requirement, in my view. Some sort of basic course, at a minimum, on household finances and, and, and maybe a separate one on just the basics of investing. Just learning the terminology. Because you know this, Rhino, you start talking about it and spewing out all the vernacular and, and the... And the um, 
uh, just the vocabulary associated with financial markets, and people just turn you off. They don't want, they like just glaze over. I posted something on my Facebook a couple of days ago. May have actually been yesterday, and it, and it was just kind of going through some of the economic realities we're facing right now as a country. And uh, and a couple of my friends that I've seen in person since then uh, thanked me for it, but said, you know, you kind of lost me when you got into all the math. And that wasn't my that wasn't my intent. I don't want to lose anybody. What I want to try to do is take these kind of complex matters and distill them down to layman's understandable. Uh, terms, but one of the things I'm watching closely is the the benchmark 10-year Treasury. The yield shot up five basis points yesterday to 4.6 percent, and and the reason that's important is because mortgages, uh, auto financing, all sorts of consumer financing. It's all tied to the, tied to this 10-year Treasury uh, note. It's actually a bill, I believe. I have to look up the difference between bill, note, bond. I sometimes get confused. It has to do with the, the term, the duration of the investment. But the 10-year Treasury is driving these rates. I think we're going to see 8% mortgage rates in the next week or two. I think we're going to see 10% mortgage rates in the first quarter next year. That's what we need to be aware of, and how do you manage through that? We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News with Phil Parsons, an Army combat veteran, on day seven running the... Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of middays is underway. We are live in the Element Well studio on this. Friday Eve. Joining us now, Phil Parsons, an Army combat veteran. Hey, Phil, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you doing today? Doing great. First of all, thank you for your service to this great country. Really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, so tell us what you're doing. You are uh, you're running, right? Uh, 444 miles is uh, what I'm told. The entire Natchez Trace Parkway. Is that correct? That's correct. So September uh, 20th, I started up there in Nashville, and uh, I've been running about approximately about 40 miles uh, every day um, to end on the uh, the 30th, um, which is in just a couple days. All right. So, what's your position right now? So right now, we're I'm I'm. Uh, over here at this this cabin, right right off the trace, um, mile marker about 102, I think is what it is. Okay. And uh, just just uh, sitting down, uh, getting a chance to take a break uh, and talk to you for a second. So uh, thank you for allowing me to have a break. <laughs> you bet. So uh, are you you're in Mississippi though, right? You're in the trace in in inside yes, of Mississippi. Sir. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, around I'm in, I'm Natchez, Kosciuszko, Natchez, and that in that range. 
Yeah, uh, Kosciuszko, I think, is, is the name, yeah. if I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, it is. Uh, we know mm-hmm. folks from outside of Mississippi uh, see that word and kind of struggle with it. Uh, those of us around these parts <laughs> that kind of grow up with it, but we appreciate that. All right, so the big thing is, why are you doing this? What's the purpose here? Yeah, so like like you mentioned, I'm a I'm a combat veteran, but I've also had my own issues with uh, mental health and and uh, issues related to suicide. And uh, as my story progressed, um, I have taken an underca- undertaking to try to uh, create some more awareness for other veterans that might be struggling, and, and just kind of show them that uh, you know that that suicide, mental health, that you know that stuff doesn't have to dictate your story or your life um, you can see you still have a chance to uh, change or rewrite your story um, in the way that you would like it to be so the statistics here Phil are staggering right in terms of the number of veterans who commit suicide and and uh, on a daily basis yes yes so, so you know we we know this the, the statistics you know what you know I think everybody's heard of 22 a day, maybe not. And if you're just hearing that's uh, the normal statistic, I think it's a lot higher than that. It just depends on how you quantify or qualify veterans. Um, you know, do you base a veteran off of one day in service, five days, five months, National Guard, active duty? How, you know, how do you determine that? Um, and so. Uh, but what what, would it, what it gets does get down to is that um, you know those of us who've been to combat are, are five times safer overseas in combat zones and then returning home, and so I'd like to try to do a little part uh, to change that. And you know I think you guys can follow along too if you if you want you know at the philruns.com and uh, you, know, tr- you know follow along with me or track me. Um, from there as I continue this journey south. Okay. Well, that's awesome. And then first responders as well, right? Uh, a big problem there. So, you know, with first responders, there's there's not a lot of statistics, but what, what we do know is, is that more first responders die by their own hand than in the line of duty. And so, wow. uh, you know, I have a lot of... Um, brothers and sisters that have, you know, they, they left the military and, and they become first responders, and, you know, because that kind of flows in their line of work. And so, uh, you know, so I have friends on, on both, you know, both sides that are affected by this issue. And so, you know, just kind of, I'm trying to just, I'm just doing as much as I can, just doing my part to, you know, raise awareness and, you know, for the general public, but then also to help and encourage you know my fellow brothers and sisters in this sense and you've gotten some support uh from members of the u.s congress as well is that correct you know i just finished uh running with a couple of the their uh their representatives up here they, they did uh, about um about two and a half three mile run walk um up up, up to here so yeah that was that was very nice they they uh and that's, and that's one of the things I, I mentioned to him. If we want to have an impact on veteran suicide or suicide in general, you know, we need to spend time listening to people going through difficult situations. Um, it's not that we need to be able to do anything more than the willingness to listen and validate their situation. 
You've been featured, Phil, we understand, on a number of other podcasts and, and news outlets as well uh, to get the message out and really promote your efforts here. Yeah, I've been on a few other podcasts, uh, the uh, Adventure Jogger, um, 10 Junk Miles. Um, there, there, there's, there's a couple more that I've, I've been on. Um, there, there's uh, the news agency. Um, I, apparently, I, they ran a, an ad, um, advertisement on me last night, or, or an ad. I don't know what you guys call those. Yeah. Um, but I was on, on the news last night there. Um, and that generated a little bit of response. Um, that's had some some uh, bike, people biking the trace. Yeah. And then they uh, let me know. They're like, hey, uh, you were on the news last night. <laughs> you know, congratulations. Keep going. Yay. And, and you know, we, we were uh, we were all, all, all of us you know, bicyclists and you all climbing up this hill. So that, that was a that was nice. Uh, little encouragement there. Yeah. Um, you know. Um, and you know, like 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 before, you know, they, uh, I, I was just encouraging sure. you know, the, the bicyclists, you know, hey, you know, follow along, you know, philruns uh, dot com, and and you know, you know, link up with me down the road, you know, I'll, you know, when I get a chance to to stop and and uh, I'll chat for a minute. So. What's that? What's that site again? philruns dot com. Is that right? That's correct. PhilRuns.com. Mm-hmm. That's all of the information is right there. Um, everything from uh, you know pledge it a support option, and then you know uh, tracking, follow where I'm at, um, a little bit more about me. Um, yeah, PhilRuns.com. Yeah, that's awesome. So you get you back to running uh, when we complete the interview today. You 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 back on the road. I'm going to be back on the road probably pretty soon. I do need to eat a bite at lunch first before we go. <laughs> he needs some fuel, some man. Calories back in me. <laughs> yes, I do. I need. I do. I. Uh, I'm uh, my stomach over here. I'm glad you haven't heard it yet, but it's it's kind of forty it's, miles it's, a day. It's, it's that's calling, that's you know? a, that's aggressive. Forty miles a day is a lot. Well, you know, you're right. Uh, so here's here's the thing behind that. You know, uh, when I realized I I didn't have to be you know super elite to do something like this. You know, I can be an everyday uh, father, veteran, and still, um, you know, I could train to to a level that I could do 40 miles a day, and that would also give me the FKT for the southbound uh, truck and the trace there, and and, um, and that way I would. Uh, you know, kind of literally own my story, you know, and, and, uh, you know, whether it's veterans, my, my family, my kids, first responders, you know, just kind of demonstrate by my own actions, you know, a way to own your story and rewrite it. Yeah. Well, it's awesome. And, uh, I certainly hope that in raising awareness, we can address this critical issues. I just, just hate to hear about so many of these, these precious veterans and first responders who, who unfortunately make the decision to take their lives. I hope we can, we can get through that and that your efforts, um, Put a stop to that, honestly, in, in total is what we'd like to see. Appreciate it, Phil. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks. You bet. And good luck to you. <laughs> I know you'll make it. Appreciate it. We're Thanks. coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio.
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. In my rear view, the sheriff said, Boy, I should have known it was you. You got 14 people in the back of this truck. I warned you twice, and now I'm riding you up. I said, Officer, what have I done? Welcome back, everyone. It's midday, Super Talk, Mississippi. That was an interesting discussion with Phil Parsons, Army combat veteran, running 444 miles. That's a lot. The entire length of the Natchez Trace, starting uh, in what's called the Northern Terminus. That was on the 20th of September, headed to the Southern Terminus, and that's up by Nashville, right? Um, and then it yeah, goes, it doesn't get quiet into Nashville. At least I don't think it does. Just it south of just short, yeah, uh, all the way down to Natchez, which of which course, the Southern Terminus for the Trace used to be. Right there at Ridgeland, where where he was stopped to talk to us, and okay. then they they connected it all the way to Clinton and passed on to Natchez. Okay, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, that strip from Clinton to to North Jackson Ridgeland area, relatively new. Gotcha. Well, that's fascinating. Well, we uh, we certainly wish him well, and we appreciate Phil Parsons for calling attention to this this problem. I mean, it's just um, it's it's really sad. Honestly, it's horrific to think about all these veterans uh, and first responders taking their lives. I hate to hear that. Totally. We, uh, by the way, great article. We were talking about the uh, the debate last night. If you could call it that, I don't know if I'd call it a debate. Uh, it was uh, what Boston Globe said: <laughs> cacophonous. It was seven disorganized stump speeches all being wrangled by three people who didn't have the cojones to do so. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. And somebody might try to cancel me for this, and I really don't care. <laughs> Whose idea was it to have three moderators for seven debaters? And when you have the three moderators, you got three distinctly different accents. That's that is true. Didn't you think had about the, that. the pitch perfect non accent Midwest accent thing that all the news people do. Then you had Mr. British guy. Yeah, that'd be and, Martha McCallum. And then you had the thickest Spanish accent I think you could have in a moderator. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that. But uh, of course Stu Varney, the Brit I can't remember the name, uh, honestly, of the uh Ilya something. Yeah, that's right. I knew it was a bunch of vowels, of the the Hispanic involved. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. You know, the other thing is, it seemed like they asked questions. Honestly, I was a bit shocked at that. I would expect to hear from uh, left leaning media organizations when they start talking about income inequality, and and specifically dug into the CEO pay and the UAW dispute, you know, versus the union workers and just income inequality in the country and that kind of stuff. That's the sort of junk I'd expect to hear out of the race lady over there at MSNBC or something like that. I was a little shocked at that, disappointed, honestly. And I truly do enjoy Stu Varney, his program every morning. I, I kind of um, uh, typically you can find me listening to that 
on my phone, uh, tuning in to Sirius on the, on the Business Channel uh, as I'm preparing for the show. He's got great guests, great commentary, always a good mix of politics and financial news. And uh, overall, he did well, but I just was surprised they let that go through. Larry, By the time I got my ears calibrated to whatever accent was asking the question, <laughs> they were halfway through it. <laughs> uh, it overall, though, I, I was disappointed. Uh, and what I was going to say is great article, that uh, great take on it from um, Ashley Edwards uh, that's published at Supertop Mississippi on our, on our of course, our website. And uh, I, I thought it was a fairly accurate analysis of the events. And he, he makes the point that, you know, missing on stage was the front runner, Donald Trump. And so all these people are kind of vying for second place. Some may argue they're vying for uh, the, the spot on the ticket as his vice presidential nominee. I'm not sure, honestly. He's been quite quiet about that. Been fairly mum. You know, the subject, once again, folks, I bring up of abortion came up again. And I still maintain there's really not a pro-life candidate on the Republican side in the race. If you, your standard, which I think is widely uh, accepted, and, um, and it's the consensus among Republicans that life begins at conception. There's not a single candidate that... Uh, supports a pro-life position where the belief is it's rooted in the belief that life begins at conception. Certainly Donald Trump doesn't support that. Ron DeSantis doesn't support that. Nikki Haley says just let the states decide. Um, The the rest of them, same deal. Now, Christie, like you said, he did make the point that the Democrats in in New Jersey were pushing for just crazy – uh, laws, honestly, bills to pass that he he stood between, vetoed, I think, that would just make abortion just a total free for all, which is what the left wants, honestly. They'll tell you they don't, but it's it's not true. They do, and it and the evidence is in the bills that they've attempted to pass in the various states since the Dobbs decision. So you've got the red leaning states that have been rushing to pass legislation that further restricts abortion because it's now determined at the state level as a result of the Dobbs ruling. And then you got the left-leaning states that have been busy just making it uh, just totally accessible, totally open, almost zero restrictions on it. Honestly, one state taking an abortion vacation in California. Yeah, I mean, even in private sector organizations are including it in their in their uh, their health coverage plans that they're offering to their employees. Even pay uh, the cost of travel for an employee that resides in a state where uh, abortion is is very restricted. And they could travel to a state and receive the procedure, terminate the pregnancy, abort the baby. It's really what it does. Uh, so you got that kind of stuff. One of the states, it escapes me who it was, that passed legislation that essentially won't pursue any kind of legal action against physicians who botch an abortion and then don't attempt to revive and save the baby, honestly, once it, uh, the abortion has been botched. And it's, it's been delivered, if you will. So, I mean, that's just how crazy things are. And just, again, a, a further evidence of how just deeply divided the country is on a myriad of issues, this being one of them, and how that is, is manifesting at the state level. No doubt about it. You've no doubt seen images, for example, on crime, which came up in the debate. Philadelphia, you seen that, Rhino, the nuttiness going on there? 
where they're just, you know, doing these smash and grab deals in grocery stores and justifying it. The people doing it, well, people got to eat. Well, so does that mean you just help yourselves to the property of others with impunity? Now, it is my understanding that 20 people were arrested, but about 200 seemed to be involved in the melees and, uh, based on the video. I mean, that's just crazy how that's happening in this country. And, and there's parts of Philadelphia that are turning into a ghost town. This is a major American city. What, fifth, sixth largest in the country? It's, and it's, uh, you got people just with no, no desire, it seems, to prosecute, arrest, punish people for just breaking the simple law of taking other people's stuff. Just let them get away. But great article written by Ashley Edwards uh, in the Super, at Supertalk News uh, on our website, Supertalk Mississippi website. Dan in Tate County. Got lots of text here. Going to get to those now. 601-879-4395. Dan in Tate County says, have you seen what all the money for Ukraine goes to? I've seen lots of reports on it, Dan. I'm not sure what to believe, honestly. What I think we should have is a complete and full accounting of where that money goes. Because at this point, it's honestly, it's um, kind of, I don't want to say it's hyperbole, but it's speculation. You've seen lots of reports say where it's going here, and other reports say it's going there. I saw Tim Scott last night, I don't know if you caught this, said, well, even though we're sending all this money, you know it's a loan, they're going to pay it back. Did you see Scott say that last night? I didn't see it live, but I saw the clip, and it was definitely a facepalm moment. Huh? What are you talking about? So, um, it, it this is a big polarizing issue, Dan, no doubt about it. I think, at a minimum, we ought to have a full accounting of where and, and all the money's going. And as you know, we've talked about this before, some of this is just in the form, the aid, which is, I think, north of $100 billion now. Some of it is in the form of military assets. It's not just cash money. Uh, and so the military assets, honestly, could only be used, I believe, for military purposes, unless they go sell them on the open market and generate cash and go use it for other. But I've seen all kinds of rumors, all kinds of speculation. If some of that's true, Dan, I'd say that's despicable. We shouldn't be paying for pensions and, and uh, I don't know, some, some of the other uses that are totally unrelated to fighting the Russians. The other thing I think somebody that is an advocate like a Tim Scott or like our two U.S. senators, they should tell us, okay, if you support additional aid, what's the end game? What's the return on investment to the U.S. taxpayers? What should we expect? from this that would benefit America and Americans. And you may have a perfectly reasonable, rational, logical answer to that, but I'm still waiting for somebody to tell me that. All I heard Nikki Haley say last night, Rhino, was, well, we can't let that happen because ceding to Russia is the same as ceding to China, because Russia and China, and it's lots of kind of speculation on that. Maybe she's right, but didn't really fly with me as, as, uh, as rationale for sending more, in my view. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Get started today. Morning, fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays from the Element Well Studio. 
We appreciate you joining us today. So, uh, Johnny and West Point, I was talking earlier in the show about uh, having my fifth colonoscopy yesterday. Said it was the best sleep I've ever had. <laughs> no doubt about it. Mo says, I'm not watching any debate that doesn't have Trump on the stage. Not even the one between the governor and Brandon Presley. Presley could never get me to vote for him. Interesting article today published in the Daily Mississippi. That would be the uh, newspaper from my alma mater, Ole Miss. And it's uh, the title of the article, Rhino, UM Students Vote, Presley versus Reeves. Now, honestly, I was expecting to see literally a, a numerical vote in the results of that. But it wasn't. It was just interviews with students, some of whom support Governor Reeves, some of whom support Brandon Presley. Here's what they had to say. This uh, first, and it's kind of split, as you would expect in an article like this. Uh, William Jackson Henshaw, he's probably shocked if he's listening to hear his name here on statewide radio, but this is published in the article, so I'm not disclosing anything that's confidential. A freshman elementary education major shared why he will be voting for Governor Reeves. Quote, he is trying to make a change in education by raising teacher salaries and improving the course curriculum within Mississippi schools. So there's a massive demand for teachers in the Delta region, and that is definitely because of the low pay. There needs to be incentives for potential teachers to move to the Delta and teach in low-income areas. I think that there are no great candidates, but Reeves just seems like the most decent one. I think we already have some sort of incentives, do we not? I think you have to teach there for a while, and maybe they'll reimburse part or maybe all of your tuition, right? Isn't there something like that in place, that I, as I recall? Well, there was at one point in time. I don't know if it's still going on, but I don't see why they would have stopped it. Yeah. Some other folks may be more familiar with that, uh, more current on that. Um, Adam Malhotra. Malhotra, I may be pronouncing that, mispronouncing that. Apologize for that. A freshman journalism major also explained that his vote will go to Governor Reeves. I would rather, quote, I would rather keep him in office. Malhotra said he is knowledgeable about the state of our economy in Mississippi and has successfully provided job opportunities. He could have done a way, uh, done a way better job handling the health care crisis, says this particular UM student, but I hope that he implements change for the better in the state's infrastructure and health care situation. So some, of course, uh, feel differently. That uh, Here's one sophomore pharmaceutical sciences major, Abby Markley, explained that she believes Presley would make, uh, will make way for younger generations to be involved in the state's political landscape. Quote, I feel like he could make a true change in Mississippi. I want to see more young people get involved and informed when it comes to politics in Mississippi. We are the next generation of people who get to make decisions for ourselves and our children, especially our state. Another says, I'm voting for Reeves because he is working towards eliminating state income tax, and I would really like to see change in state infrastructure, especially in Jackson. Here's another one that says, I'm voting for Public Service Commissioner from Mississippi's Northern District, Brandon Presley, for governor. Quote, I want to see less poverty and unemployment through tax management job opportunities. This is why I'm voting for Presley. His campaign is all about fighting corruption. He was previously a PSC commissioner. 
He saved taxpayers $6 billion and brought many jobs through his Hire Mississippi initiative. I'm confident that he will take action as governor. What's that all about? Save taxpayers $6 billion? Somebody's drinking the Kool-Aid. What does that mean? I mean, that's the, that's the current level of the state's annual budget. It's just it's north of $6 billion, 6.3, I think, to be exact. What are they talking about there? Save the t- how does how does a public service commissioner save taxpayers? I, I'm confused on that. Another says uh, they're supporting Presley could improve the quality of life for some of the poorest areas in Mississippi. This particular student wanted to re- remain anonymous. Says quote He's not Tate Reeves, and I want to see some variety in our state's governance. This is a freshman finance major. I want them to protect our access to health care and improve the standard of living for our state's poorest area, specifically for Mississippi Gulf Coast and Delta. The Gulf Coast? Well, if you've looked at any recent data, if you look at, for example, um, median household incomes, which is a very common metric to measure economic vitality and just status, socioeconomic status of a population, Madison County ranks tops in the state. I believe Harrison County's number two. If I'm not mistaken, that would be one of the three coastal counties. Last data I looked at. I think, as I recall from the last time I viewed this data, Rhino, Madison County may be the only county that is either at or above the nationwide median household income level. So, you know, this is, I think, back, Rhino, when you, when you really parse this, to what is the role of government? So when these people say, i got to vote for Presley because he's going to improve the quality of life in the Delta, by doing what? Sending them all checks? I mean, the way to improve the quality of life, students, is to boost the economy. Economic growth. I mean, the Delta has elected Democrat leaders for how long now, and they haven't done diddly squat for them? Made it worse, arguably, honestly. So, But then again, we're talking about college students and many of them freshmen. How much did you fully understand the real world when you were a freshman in college? Agree. But what's disturbing is the lack of understanding of the role of government. And so we got half the country or more that thinks the government is responsible for just making me happy. I mean, I just remember Hillary Clinton as candidate Clinton in 16. And I watched every dang speech she gave. I don't think I missed one. That Her little rallies, you know, and her minions <laughs> fawning all over her. And I came away with, the, with this, this perspective that her whole series of talking points was, your life sucks and I'm going to fix it. That's all she said. Your life sucks, I'm going to fix it. Well, no, you're not. And I don't really want you to. Just leave me the hell alone. That's what I want. And I think, I think that um, represents the views of, of lots of people that, you know, we've got to get back to teaching. No. The idea is for government to to create the environment to allow, to allow you to succeed, but not to guarantee success, like through all this DEI crap, where outcomes are just based on, you know, some arbitrary decision makers that look at all your physical attributes that say, oh yeah, you over here, you're getting this, but you over here, you're not getting any of that. It's that kind of crap. That just further divides us, in my in my view. But again, there is enormous opportunity, even today, with stupid Joe Biden's policies. 
The opportunities are incredible. And here's something that no longer even applies, in my view, which used to historically in politics. It was always about jobs, jobs, jobs. Good, high-paying jobs. Guys, there are 10 million job openings in this country right now. That ain't a problem. The problem is nobody wants to work. That's the bigger problem. They want all the, the spoils, they want all the benefits, financial benefits, of successful Americans, but they don't want to work to achieve it. Now I'm going to take a shot at the unions here. That's a great example. I just want to work 32 hours, but I want you to pay me for 40. That's an example. And all these people say, i got to have free health care, free child care, free this, free that. Okay, well, what are you going to pay for? And now, again, that's, that's, I think, where we got off the rails. It's like saying, well, Brandon Presley, he's just going to make everything better in Mississippi as a governor. Well, no, the best thing the governor can do, which I think Tate Reeves is doing, is realize the best way to improve the quality of life in Mississippi is to grow the state's economy. He gets that. And you know where that comes from? The private sector. So what we got to do is create an environment that is attractive to private investment. That's where great economic outcomes come from. And at the federal level, to all these uh, candidates on the stage last night, I didn't hear a single one talk about the expiration of the Trump tax cuts. Did you? Did I miss that? Because I watched the whole thing. Did I miss something there? In the first debate, Pence did say it, and he did also said, you know, I was involved in that. And Tim Scott did say, yes, I was an author on the Senate side. All that's true. But did you hear him say, hey, this thing's going away in two years, three years? we got to do something. I think Nikki Haley danced around it a little bit, but she was mainly talking about small businesses and taxes. That's right. She was, about the effect of the on pass-through entities as a result of the exploration. But that ought to be top of the list, honestly. Tax policy is huge in economic growth. And then the regulatory state. I will give that to Vivek Ramaswamy. You hear him constantly focus on, we've got to tear down, as he pronounces it, the administrative state. I think I said that correctly. Um, but I agree. We've said that on the program so many times. We've got these career bureaucrats running these agencies, and they're rogue, honestly, when they, when they uh, implement and enact all these stupid policies that are just killing the economy. That's where we've got to be focused. Taxes, regulation, get the heck out of the way. Pro-growth, and that includes oil. You're not going to improve the inflation situation till we see the price of oil start to retreat. Just not going to happen. And they did have some, some comments on that. By the way, several people did remind it was Rich Little, the famous impersonator we were talking about, coming right back in the Element Well studio. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk, Mississippi. In the Element Well studio, the other, honestly, it's just a, I'm going I'm to be nice and calling, call it an untruth. How about that? It's You hear this all the time, from, uh, and Biden did it again yesterday. 
Donald Trump's tax cuts all went to his wealthy friends. Hear that all the time. You, you know, you're shaking here. That right? You hear that? And it, it's not just Joe Biden. It's the assortment of Democrats that like to quip that all the time. Because they know the people that are going to vote for them won't question it. That's absolutely true. They'll take it at face value. Well, you know, if you looked at the at the value, the dollar value of the tax cuts, well, sure, you know who they went to? The people who paid taxes. Because you can't cut something that you never paid. You can't cut something you never provided. It's like saying the guy that took the most swings at the home run derby hit the most balls. Exactly. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> so they just leave that little that little aspect of uh, the narrative out there. Well, of course they got the most, because they're the ones who paid it. You know what Jethro Bodine said, right? Not times not equal not. He's smarter at math than Biden and the Democrats. Well, that's not saying much. <laughs> we need Jethro Bodine in office. It, I will say this. You heard Nikki Haley say it again last night. Said we need more accountants. <laughs> uh, we need an accountant in the White House. I think she said that last time in this. I don't even know if she is one. But it surely does help when you got somebody that understands the basics of math. But, of course, they got the most from the cuts because they paid the most. That's how it works. And, in fact, when you consider that more than half the households in this country don't pay any federal income taxes. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Zero. None. Well, how do you cut zero? Well, that means you send the money back. That's exactly what's happening. There are a lot of folks who file their tax returns simply so the government will send them a check. Think about that. The IRS is more involved in sending checks out than they are taking it in. These facts just get omitted, do they not? A bit mysteriously from the conversation. The top 1% pay 42% of all the income taxes. The top 10, 72%. The top 90, uh, pardon me, the top 50, the top 50% of taxpayers, 97.3%. The Bottom 50, 2.7. 2.7. Half the taxpayers account for 2.7. Yet, Biden and the Democrats say, well, those people at the top got to start, just begin to pay their fair share. How mathematically moronic can you be? Don't challenge them. <laughs> I just want to get that out there. So, we got the um, we got the 10-year... Uh, got the 10-year Treasury sitting at uh, about 4.7 now. And that, of course, drives, as we said earlier, that, of course, drives uh, mortgage rates. <sighs> and then we got oil crossing the $94 a barrel mark, 93 yesterday. By the way, this is the highest level of the 10-year in 15 years. 15 years. Consumer sentiment down. Recent reports show consumers don't feel as as good about their future as they did last month. That's going down. And you got crushing inflation where wages are not keeping up. Real wages actually down. In fact, recent statistics now show that the rate of poverty has increased across all demographics. And in fact, for single mothers who have children in their household, it has doubled under Biden. Doubled! 
Now, how can Corrine Jean-Pierre and all the other Democrats, with a straight face, tell the American people and the race lady over there at MSNBC and their, and their other uh, surrogates, I guess you could call them, in the, in the left-wing media, oh, Biden's just done such a great job for the economy. What the heck are they talking about? What are they talking about? And they always, of course, point to jobs, 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 jobs. The same people who, who killed all the jobs during the COVID era. You can't work. And then send money out of helicopters to account for it, to offset it. Well, that's not creating jobs. That's just letting people go back to the jobs they had before you told them to go home. That's not job creation. Man, that's, uh, I get frustrated because they won't level and just tell the dang truth. That is just, it's just not true. It's completely false. Completely false. The same was with the Trump tax cuts all went to the wealthy. It Usually they always add the, the descriptor, it's Trump's wealthy friends. Oh, yeah, he's here, have some, have some. That's such BS. That's such crap. That's just not true. Hey, I'm going to take care of, like, this handful of wealthy friends by completely reforming the tax code from top to bottom. Just tell the truth, please. Please, that's all the American people want. It's what they're entitled to. We're stepping aside for a break. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. The afternoon portion of Middays is straight ahead. And now, and now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. It is hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays on this. Friday Eve. You know, of course... Journey coming to the Mississippi Gulf Coast, kicking off the 2024 Freedom Tour. I think that's February the 9th. Already got tickets? I do, but I'm disappointed, Must uh, I must tell you. I'm in row three, right in the middle. I wanted row one, of course, and we got on a little late. I don't think we were late, honestly. I just think somebody's already squatting on those. I'll find them. You know that. <laughs> They'll be on StubHub for an enormous sum. That's how I was in row one right in the middle at the Smoothie King last time uh, down in New Orleans, last time they performed there a couple of years ago on the tour. But looking forward to that. I think uh, you're going to see a sellout in all 29 shows that go through uh, April at this point. But Neil Sean, the iconic lead guitarist of Journey, says we got more coming in the back half of the year. They'll probably take a little time off and then get back on it. So looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun for sure. Uh, and just wanted to tell all the folks on the ceasefire text line that uh, texted in to let me know it was Rich Little that uh, was such a great impersonator of Ronald Reagan. I think it was as well. I actually saw Rich Little perform, this is crazy, Rhino, live here. I think I was in college. He came to Mississippi and performed at what is now the Crown Plaza in downtown Jackson. I think it was maybe the a Holiday Inn uh, back in those days. But uh, my mother and father really liked uh, Rich Little, and so went. I think it then was with my wife, who was just my girlfriend at the time. We were in college, as I recall, when he was here. Uh, very entertaining, very funny. He's awesome. 
and uh, went and watched a couple of clips of him uh, on the break. He was on Huckabee's show, and he had like a Saturday night uh, show on Fox, Fox News, I think is what it was. But he was a guest on there, and he was doing his, his Reaganisms. He was awesome. Uh, doing that, maybe one of his best. Jimmy Stewart, he was great with that. Extremely talented. Canadian, Rich Look. But appreciate all the folks who texted in. Rich and Biloxi, Robert and Clinton, Robert and Brandon, Lindy from Gluckstadt. They all knew right off the bat. Gary from Tishomingo, Sam Tupelo, Ray on the Coast, Brad from Guntown. Appreciate you guys listening and letting us know. By the way, on the ceasefire text line, someone referred to Governor Doug Burgum of the great state of North Dakota as Mr. Eyebrows. He does have rather thickish eyebrows. Did, did you also notice that the lighting didn't, didn't seem to be very flattering? Like it seemed to really highlight... The, the normal human imperfections we have on our faces. Like, I've never really noticed all the brown spots, for example, on Chris Christie. But they were just seemed to be more visible. So I, I, I thought the lighting could have been more flattering. I'll just put it there. And I guess Well, it was a combination of stage lighting and they're in that big wide-open room That's full true. of windows on the West Coast when it was still daylight. That's true. So it's kind of hard to get that, uh, I guess, optimum for such an event. That's true. You're good point. And you got uh, uh, the plane that served, can't call it Air Force One because it's only Air Force One with the presidents on it, but right, the plane that served as Air Force One at the, at the museum there that Ronald Reagan used, I believe it was a 747, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Ron from Ocean Springs also let us know it's it's uh, was Rich Little. Appreciate that. Darren and Jackson says, Trump-DeSantis ticket. I'm just not sure, Darren. It, it seems like that makes sense, but you never know what uh, what's in store there. None of the candidates, this is Karen in Oxford, none of the candidates could have a good solution to anything and not uh, be saying what Trump was already trying to do or did. It, it, it does seem that would be the case, but I think that's because, for the most part, Trump's policies were just consistent with what Republicans support, and they're just common sense. I mean, really, it's not like a rocket science genius. Oh, guess what? We still need fossil fuels. That means we better be producing enough to meet demand, or otherwise the price is going to skyrocket. Well, duh, that's what happened. And you know what? If we don't close the border, we're going to have this influx of a lot of people that really shouldn't get into this country. Okay, that makes sense. And you know what? China, uh, they're not our they're not our friend. Neither is is Russia. And we need to to uh, uh, promulgate and enact policies that recognize that. Yeah, that makes sense to me, too. And crime is a problem. It's hard to have a thriving, prosperous economy when people are stealing you blind with impunity. Yeah, agree with that, too. Well, the point I'm trying to make is most people on that stage last night all support those sort of Trump-oriented policies. The one thing I don't know that I've heard a lot from on Trump that is uh, an area where they differ is on support for Ukraine. Where you got Vivek Ramaswamy who says no more money to Ukraine, and then you got Nikki Haley saying, you know what she said last night? Uh, this was about TikTok. So Nikki Haley wants to ban TikTok. I think, if I'm not mistaken, she wants to ban 
Use of social media by everybody under a certain age, like 16 or yeah. something like that. That's her, right? Yeah. And Vivek does not support that. Though he does support that what between the age of 18 and 25, you ought to have to take a civics test, a basic civics test, to qualify to vote. Unless you've served as a first responder in the military. I think those would be the exceptions. And I've looked at that test. You know what? We could all stand a little refresher. There were some things on there that I wasn't quite sure about until I looked them up. It's a dang good test. Here's the question, though, Rhino. Why do we make immigrants take that to become citizens? But we don't, let, we don't require people going to school in this country that are already citizens to understand that information. Maybe it's because they don't, most leftists who sort of run our school system, I think that's pretty true. The, the uh, teachers' unions have a pretty strong grip on education in this country. Not so much here in Mississippi, but certainly across the country broadly. They don't want that. They don't want that to be taught. Oh, they may learn about just how great this country is and its founding and its principles. They don't want that. They want to remake it, reimagine it. The Air Force One aircraft in the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library is a VC-137C SAM 27000. Okay, whatever that is. But it's not a... I it's swear. one of it's the second of two Boeing VC one thirty seven C's. One thirty seven C okay. specifically configured and maintained for the use of the President of the United States, and it was in service until August of two thousand one. Okay. It sure looks like to me, uh just just looking at it, a um a seven forty seven, and I say that because it's got the familiar uh hump uh around the nose, which is for the second floor to support the second floor. But uh, but uh, and maybe this was uh, either before or after that. I'm I'm not sure what the sequence was. But appreciate that. But it's a big old airplane hanging up from the ceiling. You can see that in the background, right? Yeah, it does not look like this one I'm looking at. You're right. The VC 137C is more of a, a traditional fuselage body where it's level all the way uh, down the length. Interesting. Um. But it that, that's a fairly old aircraft, though. I wonder if they retired that at some point, and then... Yeah, it was in service from August of 72 to August of 2001. Okay, to 2001. I swear I saw I thought it somewhere along the line a 747 was used to put into service, placed into service as Air Force One. And then that was changed. Maybe that was after that. Maybe they replaced it with that. Not sure. Good stuff, though. Uh... Let's see there, 223 million per day since February 22nd, says Jerry and Waynesboro. Let that sink in. And you know the point, he's talking about Ukraine, and the point about this is, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't want my tax money going there. Well, really what happens is it's not like more of your tax money gets diverted to that because we don't really consider the revenue that is derived from, from taxes when we spend money in this country. We, we spend it without consideration for revenue. It's just, here's how much we got to spend. All right, where are we going to get that from? Oh, don't worry about that. We'll just print it. That's how it works. We're, uh, as I said, it looks like we are poised. We were a few days away from the end of the federal government's fiscal year. $2 trillion, $2 trillion deficit. That's going to put Biden at $6.2 trillion. Now, last night, someone did correctly point out that Donald Trump presided over $7.8 trillion being added to the debt. That's absolutely accurate. Most of that came, honestly, in the COVID year of 2020. 
Was it Christie that started hammering on that first? I think it was. He also called him Donald Duck. Did you see that? Referring to his his no-show at the debate, ducking the debate. Oh, that was cute, wasn't it? He's Donald Duck. I'm sure that'll boost his prospects. Oh, gosh. How crazy is all that stuff? What is the company on your show? Oh, I don't know about that. That's a question on the ceasefire text line that I just noticed. It's into a subject matter of which I'm not familiar. Not even going to recite that, but we'll see what we can find out. We have uh, got a break on our hands right now. That's what's in store. And we're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, so it looks like that it was during the Reagan era when Air Force One uh, became a, a 747, the SAM, uh, the model SAM 27,000, that's what I'm seeing, 28,000. There's a set 27,000, 28,000, 29,000. It, this is really confusing, all the history on Air Force One. Uh, and all the all the various Boeing model numbers are a bit confusing as well. But it looks like that it was uh, a request for proposal was issued in 1985 for two uh, 747 aircraft, and that was to replace the old 707 that was in service. Is that what you're saying? Before then, I think the 707, if I'm not mistaken, was um, pretty long. Um, aircraft. It was, it was used commercially for commercial flight and had four jet engines, two on each wing, as I recall, was kind of the configuration. I think I flew on one of those as a kid. It was like a really big, at the time, was like the biggest in the the commercial fleet. And that was in the 60s when I went to visit my brother in California when he was serving his country in the U.S. Air Force. We flew out there with, I flew out there with um, my parents. I want to say there was one of those legs, we were on a 707. I think it may have been from San Francisco to Dallas on the return flight. That's pretty commonly used back then, workhorse of the various commercial airlines. But it's, it's fascinating. But it's just cool to see in the backdrop where the debate was held, that big old airplane hanging. The Smithsonian's got some as well uh, as part of the aviation history. So Paula Meridian says, credit card companies are killing us. If you had a balance prior to this rate increase, it should apply to your new purchases, not if you had a balance. Well, I hear you, Paul, but just keep in mind that the way that, um, that, that those financial machinations work 
is the credit card companies, they're borrowing money, and then they're loaning it to you. And when they borrow that money, it's based on current outstanding balances. So it's not like they borrow it one time to fund the amount you, you spend and put on your credit card. They're constantly borrowing money to fund their outstanding balances and just managing their cash uh, accordingly. And so it's all tied to that, um, and it's going to continue to be. Uh, you know, their margin on that in terms of just the spread between what they pay for money and what they sell it for is fairly constant, honestly. And the same in the banking industry. It um, certainly helps them when rates increase. The, the spreads stay the same, but, but as a percentage, uh, because you're dealing with a higher number, it's a little better return for them. However, I've heard Rhino, a lot of my, a lot of my friends in business, in industry, and even uh, from the banking world, say that credit is tightened considerably, and that's because they're more careful, more risk-averse, because they're concerned about the ability to repay. When the rates get up there and the the debt service is higher, and same is true, of course, with mortgages. As mortgage rates rise, then, generally speaking, um, a, a prospective homeowner is limited uh, by the monthly payment as as it um, ratios out to their household gross incomes, usually how that's figured. It's usually gross income, and then there's a calculation for gross income, less constant expenses and of, of the household. That's how they figure that ratio of how much you could afford in the, in the way of a mortgage. Well, when mortgage rates go up, uh, for a lot of people, that means they can afford less house, uh, a less costly house It's part of that. And uh, so that's just the consequences of high high mortgage rates. But I don't think we've seen nearly the end of that. I still believe we're going to see 10% mortgages in the first quarter. I could be wrong, and you guys can call me out on it if that's the case. I think we're within two, maybe three weeks of seeing 8% mortgages. It's, what, seven and change right now, seven and a half or so, the average 30-year. And this is all tied to the 10-year. And that's just because investors are a little squeamish on the economic outlook and they're moving money out of equities and reallocating it into bonds, and that that causes a spike in yields. So that's what, uh, that's what we're seeing right now, no doubt about it. That's the environment, and that is affecting that is affecting interest rates, and we all have to deal with that. 40 miles a day seems elite to me. Awesome, says Bob and Starkville. That's talking about uh, Phil Parsons, who is uh, running 40 miles a day uh, down the Natchez Trace there and uh, support and to raise awareness of suicide of veterans and first responders. I agree. 15 to 18 minute miles for 40 miles a day. I guess so, says Jeff in, in Grenada. Really didn't ask him that. I don't know how long he spends to run 40 miles. It seems to me like that take all day. I can't comprehend that. A lot of people would struggle running half a mile or a mile, much less 40 in a day. Chris at some Yeah, my bad. I said it was Martha McCallum. You're right. It was Dana Perino. She, Martha McCallum was uh, one of the hosts after the show. As I recall, you're right. It was Dana Perino. Rhino points out she's from, actually from Denver, I believe, from the Colorado area. But she does. She kind of has trained her voice as a as a non accent accent. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And that was a stark contrast to Stuart Varney with his classic British um, accent 
and then uh, the other lady who's Hispanic that was part of the three-person panel. Thank you for that, uh, Chris, correcting me there. My bad. Univision, that's right, and that's why we had the uh, the female Hispanic journalist, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. Was there for a reason. Check the boxes. Little DEI going on there, right? That's uh, That was on the ceasefire text line. Shaq, Bully, and Biloxi, Gerard, as bad as I hate to say it, pro-life might fly in the primaries, but a pro-lifer doesn't stand a chance in the general election. I totally agree. Shaq, Bully, said it many, many times on the program, and Donald Trump has said it, you've heard it, Rhino, over and over and over again, that abortion hurt Republicans in the midterms, and, and that he's, he's looking for, you know, some um, sort of alternative middle-of-the-road-style solution to this problem, to this debate, to this issue. But certainly... The problem with that is that the conservatives and Republicans have already compromised from pro-life, life begins at conception, to a, a limited availability of abortions. The left just keeps going farther to the left. Agree. And I'll have to say this, and... When the Dobbs case came down, I recall even talking about that. I mean, it's big news, of course, especially for those of us here in Mississippi. And, and I said, I think what you're going to see here is, is now that this, this decision is, is uh, in the hands of the states, you're going to say the left-leaning states, just as you said, Rhino, move farther to the left and really make abortion more available, more accessible, more accommodating, and the right-leaning states are going to restrict it more. That's exactly what's happened. Now, recent reports I've seen, and I unfortunately predicted that on the show, is that abortions are up in this country as a result. So, while I think from a legal perspective, the Dobbs case was the right thing to do, it is a matter for the states. I think the courts got that right. It was wrong um, under Roe, the decision there. I think that's absolutely correct. But the result of that is those States, most of which are very populated, that lean left, they've taken advantage of this to really dramatically open up access to abortion. And and consequently, that means more abortions are being performed. So, now, it's obviously true that in a state like Mississippi, where we only had, what, one abortion clinic at the time, the ruling came down. Uh, so we didn't, we weren't really performing a lot of abortions, and and we had a trigger that uh, put into effect a law. I'm not even sure we have a clinic left in Mississippi. That right, they're gone. That 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 one closed down, I believe, since they couldn't really perform abortions except for those exceptions that our law grants. So not surprising. Even though their proponents were saying that that was just a part of their service. Yeah, which has all always been BS. It may be a part of it, but they can't make the economics work without it. That's just a fact. Veterans can also text the VA crisis line at 838-255. I had to do it myself this past weekend. I'm very sorry to hear that. And this is talking about uh, suicide suicide prevention. We've had a number of guests on the program this month because this is uh, National Suicide Awareness and Prevention Month. I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, Rhino and I, uh, we, we worry about you, and we, we want you to be healthy. Um, stay stay safe. And, um, man, don't give up. That's the main thing. Don't give up. you got life to live. You need to live it. You need to be here. People are relying on you for that and want to see you. And we sure do here. Want to see you keep you keep texting in to the text line and and we'll catch it. And we appreciate uh, your service as well. 
to our country. We're coming right back with half an hour left on Midday. Stay with us. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Midday Super Talk Mississippi from the Element Wealth Studio. I saw Phil between French Camp and Kosciuszko on Tuesday on the ceasefire text line from Chris the Mailman. Sounds like he's well on his way to reaching his destination down there at the, at, uh, in Natchez, right? At the, what's it called? The Southern Terminus, I believe. Yep. That's correct. That would be the end. Terminus, terminal. Yep. So, um, Let's see, there was something else that I was going to get to here. Uh, yeah, back to our our listener, Rhino, that texted us that he called the the VA text line. Your, your life is worth something. It's valuable. Every life is valuable. Just keep that in mind, please. Jim in the Delta says, Gerard, do you believe that you can change the mind of another adult? who falls in line with the left. I can't think of one adult I know who has changed their beliefs. I suspect that 80% of your listeners are like me and agree with most of all of what you say and believe. I suspect it's even higher on some of the liberal shows. Seems to me that the left recognized this years ago and started focusing their efforts on controlling our public schools, our institutions of higher ed, and manipulating our young people. Yes, well, of course, Jim, that's, that's right out of the Marxist playbook, is it not, Rhino? That you gotta, you got to indoctrinate and brainwash the young folks, because when they grow up, they grow up to be good little obedient Marxists. That's the idea. And we've pounded on that on this program. And so much of it happens subversively. You don't know about it, about this kind of crap going on. I mean, I shared uh, on, on Tuesday when you were out a story about these fools in higher education that are looking to uh, extinguish the word white in the term white paper because it's racist. It's just insanity like that. That's a kind of craziness. And so that, that permeates the student population. When you get folks that generally they respect, professors, learned individuals, highly educated people, they come up with this garbage. Oh, yeah, we can't have that. Can't have white paper anymore. That's just nonsense. Now, one thing I will give Tim Scott, although I think it's getting a little long in the tooth, he always does talk about how the country's not racist. He always shares his story, which I very much appreciate and respect. And he's right about that. But 
got to get beyond that, in my view. I think it's fine to point that out, but I want to hear more substance from, from Tim Scott, honestly. Again, I didn't hear what I was looking for more than anything, and I, maybe that's just the, the business person in me that's just focused on economic issues, and it, clearly the country sees that as their top issues, which is why I'm disappointed that the candidates didn't focus on it, which is, where are your pro-growth policies? I get it. You're all for unleashing the American energy sector. I'm all for that as well. But not really a lot of specifics along those lines, and maybe there's not a lot to to really discuss, uh, but nothing about taxes and the Trump tax cuts. I'm going to say that again. You did, I didn't hear anybody saying, yeah, this thing is right around the corner. We need to make that permanent. We need to push back on the Bernie Sanders and Liz Warrens and Chuck Schumers and Joe Bidens and the whole damn Democrat Party that thinks that these were just tax breaks for Trump's wealthy friends, which is complete horse hockey. And it's just not being honest. And then, you know, um, oh, the, Robert. The one thing that struck me during the debate last night, it was, I, I felt it a little bit during the first debate, but, but right before I turned it off last night, if I could pick and choose certain facets of the characters these people are playing on the stage and put them into one, it'd be great. Like, if I could have Chris Christie's political acumen Take that away from his unlikable personality. Add in Vivek Ramaswamy's energy. And take DeSantis's popularity and, and background. Max that all together with maybe Tim Scott's storytelling ability, because God bless him, Ron DeSantis can't tell a story to save his <laughs> He's life. He's terrible at that. <laughs> but then I got to the point where I'm looking at him, I'm going, after seeing Trump just run off the cuff, 99.9% of the time. Yeah. It makes every single person on that stage look phony. Yeah. I and Rhino was sharing with uh that observation with me during the break. And you know what? I, I actually shared that with somebody who uh works at the Secretary of State's office last night. And the reason I say that is because I got a meeting down there at 1:30. They're having a health care task force meeting too. And said, "Look, uh, I'm just getting to a TV, been traveling. Can uh, you think I should tune into the, the debate? And at that time, it was about 9:15. Had 45 minutes left. I said, honestly, I don't think so. And I sent them. Um, Fox News was doing a good job of just sort of tracking the the uh, the debate and uh, what was going on, the various activities and, and kind of the notable um, aspects and incidents. And the, one of the first articles that that they sent out because it happened kind of early was Pence's bombing joke. <laughs> about Joe and the unemployment line. And I sent that to him. He said, well, that's easy. That makes my decision. It's not worth tuning in. I tend to agree. But I exactly said that to him last night. I said, you know, the thing that's coming across to me is none of them are impressing. None of them are inspiring. None of them are sort of saying, yeah, I'm the person you want to be the president. But it does seem that they're they're trying like almost too hard to the point where it comes across as phony to uh, deliver some talking points or it just doesn't seem natural. I totally agree with it. It's like you said about DeSantis and his fake smile, and it's and it's uh, to me it's Tim it's Scott. Somebody in his camp told him you need to smile more, that's but he never right. does it, so it just looks weird. And that's the problem all of them have is they have. These these groups of people that are all feeding them information and talking. It's like a writer's room for a TV show. <laughs> and they're just popcorning ideas for a good joke. 
so that when they get a question, they can't actually answer the question. They have to circle around it and get to something they've actually got a prepared talking point for. <laughs> Pants did it every time. Well, I don't want to answer that question. I want to go back to the one you asked three questions ago. Every time he did that. Something else that did come up last night does seem to be fairly broad support amongst the candidates for school choice. Uh, at the federal level. Nikki Haley made some great talking points about that. Then, of course, Ron DeSantis, I think, correctly comes in and says, you guys can talk about that. We've done it in Florida. He's right. Doug Burgum gave some description of what they did in North Dakota. I couldn't follow it, honest. Did you hear that? Like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> that that doesn't really make any sense to me. But that, I'm telling you, is going to be a big issue here, I believe, in the state of Mississippi. And we've got all the candidates, including Donald Trump, that are big proponents and supporters of universal school choice. And the other thing is, many of them do support less involvement of the federal government in education, including Ramaswamy and Haley. Didn't hear much from the other candidates on that. Uh, but they specifically point out, yeah, we don't want the Department of Education involved in education. That's a matter for the states. I totally agree. Uh, and I would be in favor of significantly reducing the ranks and the size and scope of that department, if not totally eliminating it, uh, Which, I think. in fairness, to, to give Pence a point, probably the only point I would give him for the whole debate, was when he sidestepped the Obamacare question of, would you That's true. get rid of Obamacare, he took that opportunity to list off all the other federal agencies he would cut. <laughs> yeah, well, it never really answered the question, in my view. You're, you're right about that. It's, and that's disappointing when they won't sort of answer those thorny, tough questions like that. Uh, let Democrats have abortions. We don't want them to reproduce every abortion. Just one less Democrat. No, that's terrible. That's not true. That's on the ceasefire tax line. We've gotten away from the practice safe sex agenda. It's all about you can get an abortion over here. Yeah, it's considered a health care, right? Reproductive health care. We, we, we ascribe these kind of virtuous names to all these things. The same with the whole transgender agenda, right? And, and almost all of them said we need to drive all the woke stuff out of um, our culture, certainly um, in, in schools. They all, all said that, but Trump said that as well. So again, but it does, it does come across a bit phony when they discuss it. Well, they that, talk about that it. wordsmithing of reproductive health care is a perfect example of the left is just lying to your face. They, they love to accuse the right of moving, moving farther to the right. The right has become the alt-right, the far right, the, the MAGA Republicans and stuff like that. When it's the left that has moved so far off the cliff to the left, it was Slick Willie Bill Clinton that coined safe, legal, and rare, or, or brought it back to prominence. How far have we come when abortion went from safe, legal, and rare to reproductive health care? Totally agree. Just on demand. And to your point, Chucky Schumer uh, tweeted, all last week, Speaker McCarthy catered to the MAGA hard right and has nothing, nothing to show for it. We now have four days to go until funding expires. By the way, this was uh, Tuesday. And yet, Speaker McCarthy is still wasting time on MAGA hard right bills that won't get us any closer to avoid a shutdown. So to Chuck Schumer, MAGA hard right bills means, oh, I don't know, maybe not spending more than you take in. That's now considered hard right. That's how insane 
insane the world has gotten. And then it's Liz Warren who says, uh, Amazon has abused its monopoly power to crush competition and boost profits at the expense of consumers and small business. You may have seen they're getting sued for um, uh, some sort of antitrust violation, which I find to be kind of specious at best. We're coming right back with more, the final segment of Middays. i got to tell you what old Robert Reich has to say about the UAW strike. Stay with us. Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, Super Talk Mississippi. Mike in Collinsville says many banks are suffering with liquidity issues after the Fed raised the rates so rapidly over the last 18 months. It will take much longer for banks to increase yields on loan and investment portfolios. Yeah, you're right, Mike. So one of the problems is, folks, when uh, banks, of course, invest in in treasuries, uh, bonds, notes, bills. By the way, the bonds, I think, are the longer-term variety of, of treasury securities. And then you got the notes, which I believe are two to ten years, and anything under two, if I'm not mistaken, is a bill, is the way they're categorized. But they're all basically U.S. Uh, debt instruments. Um, you're right, Mike. And so th- they, uh, of course, have those on their balance sheet, and, and those are there as assets on their balance sheets uh, for to meet reserve requirements and just overall uh, balance sheet metric standards that bank regulators look for. The problem is a lot of those those uh, treasuries are on their balance sheets at zero to one to two percent interest. And now, uh, and th- and then when they have to go generate cash by selling those on the market, nobody wants to buy a one or two percent treasury uh, bill note bond that's three, four years old, five years old, because they can go to the open market and get five to a percent, uh, approaching five percent returns, yields on those bonds. And so they take a bath. They take a big old haircut. Uh, for example, they bought those bonds for $10,000. This is an example, a bond at $10,000, and they try to go sell that, and you go to a, the open market, and they're paying one percent interest, and the people say, I'll give you five for it, which means that they're going to take the, they're going to, Pay five thousand dollars, and when they they mature, um, they'll get the full ten. That's the only way they can make money because they can't make money off the interest. Talking about the buyer, so yeah, it's a conundrum. You're right, Mike, and we're just starting to see the effects of that. This is one of the reasons that banks are tightening up on um, on their loans, is because they're sitting on all these old uh, treasury securities. Because you're right, in such a short period of time, we uh, we raised rates, and they just they can't they can't turn them, they can't roll them fast enough to to make that work effectively for them. Robert Wright, so I got to get to him. You know, if, no surprise, he just uh, is a big uh, detractor <laughs> and critique or, or um, 
yeah, offers critiques, strong critiques of the uh, the big three automakers involved in the UAW strike. And of course, he loves to to uh, promote and message just how much money they made and how much money the CEOs made. It's all about that. All this class warfare uh, stuff. He's a big critic of theirs in that respect. And so he lists, Rhino, from 2013 to 2023, the big three automakers combined profits. Like there's some sin committed by them because they, oh my gosh, they made a profit. How could they do that? And it's always this this message, so yes, they can afford to pay the workers more. Look at all this profit they made. Of course, they never take into consideration the years where they lost their shirts. They only talk about the years where they made a profit. Well, no profit, no investors, no sale of equity, no stock, no capital to grow, to invest in new te- uh, new innovation, new vehicles, pay people more, hire more people, build more plants. If you start showing declining profits or even worse yet, losing money, the market dries up. It says, I'm not putting my money there. And then that causes a bigger problem for everybody. They just don't get that. They're always focused on when things are going great for these companies and how they've got to manage and be aware of, oh, yeah, but the other shoe's going uh, to fall. And all of a sudden, this $30 billion of profit that the three made last year combined turns into $30 billion loss. And they've got all these commitments to pay all these people all this additional money. Nobody takes that into consideration. Well, the folks on the left don't. So I, I, um, I got engaged on his Facebook post, and not that he reads it, uh, but I said, you know, that's fantastic. They made all this money. They produced all these profits. Hey, there's an easy solution to this. Quit buying their cars. You don't like them making money? Quit buying their cars. Who's going to do that? I'm not going to buy my car from Ford. They make money off this when I buy it from them. I'm going to buy it from somebody else. Oh, they make money, too. I mean, it's crazy how they get into all this kind of crap. You know, consumers do overwhelmingly support the unions in this regard. Um, but uh, but they're not going to stop buying their cars. That's just the part they miss about it. Robert Reich is just so misguided and promotes this narrative. But what really disturbs folks is when you start digging into the con- comments from some of these people, the the attitude and the beliefs held by a lot of people in this country, they were so jealous, so envious, and so apoplectic about the CEOs. By the way, the CEO of GM did make $29 million last year. Now, most of that's in stock and not cash that they can't sell. That fact gets always omitted from the discussion as well. She oversees a company with 176,000 employees. If every dime she made were distributed to all 176,000, it'd be $173 a year. We're out of here today, back tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.